the House and the Senate have both adjourned. The House will likely not come back until after the election, while the Senate will come back to vote on the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. Let's start off with Transparency 2020. The big tech giants have made clear that they will not allow conservatives to share information about legal challenges, disputed ballots, election mayhem, or anything else that might complicate what that might complicate what they expect will be a transfer of power from Donald Trump to Joe Biden et al. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Google, and YouTube will take down messaging they find to be in violation of their so-called community standards and will remove accounts outright if they so desire. One social media platform, however, will not engage in such thought policing. Parler, which for most of, for, for those of you who haven't heard of it, looks and feels most like Twitter, has announced its election transparency pledge. The platform says it will, quote, parlay publicly available information on election rules and procedures, statements by candidates, parties, and watchdogs, and will echo individual parlays with the hashtag transparency 2020 hashtag that receive a high level of engagement for our community, from our community, end quote. For those of you who are interested, I've included some links in the suggested reading so you can get more information. To the debates, on Thursday morning, without having bothered to even inform the two presidential candidates, let alone discuss it with them, the Commission on Presidential Debates decided that because of President Trump's coronavirus, coronavirus diagnosis, the next presidential debate scheduled for Thursday, October 15, would be switched from its planned town hall format and would instead be a virtual debate. Within less than an hour, President Trump announced he would not participate in such an exercise. Over the course of the next 36 hours, discussions went back and forth before the commission announced its decision simply to cancel the debate outright. What the commission has done here is irrational and can only be explained as the result of a conscious decision to provide cover for the Biden campaign. The decision makers at the CPD had no reason to believe that President Trump's coronavirus would not have run its course by next Thursday. Parenthetically, the president's doctor released a memo last night saying that President Trump was, quote, no longer considered a transmission risk to others, end quote. Even a man as much a part of the Washington establishment as former Senate Majority Leader Bob Dole recognized the problem and commented that he knew all of the Republican members of the commission and it troubled him that not a single one of them was a supporter of President Trump. As it stands now, there will be no town hall format presidential debate. So far, the commission has said nothing about the scheduled final debate set to take place on Thursday, October 22 at Belmont University in Nashville. The moderator for that debate will be Kristen Welker of NBC News. She's the network's White House correspondent and co-anchor of Weekend Today. To investigating the investigators, Attorney General Bill Barr has been telling the White House and senior Republicans that they should not expect further indictments or the release of a serious narrative from Connecticut U.S. Attorney John Durham before the election. Durham has for more than a year been tasked with investigating the origins of the FBI's crossfire hurricane investigation of President Trump and his campaign. President Trump is not happy with this turn of events. During a Fox Business News interview on Thursday, he declared in no uncertain terms that he believes Barr has, quote, got all the information he needs, unquote, to file charges. But he insists on getting what the president called, quote, more, 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 quote, to be honest, the president said, Bill Barr is going to go down as either the greatest attorney general in the history of the country, or he's going to go down as, you know, a very sad situation, end quote. 
Coronavirus relief. Is the deal on or off? Even those who've been following the, on- the ongoing negotiations over the next coronavirus relief bill cannot say for sure. On Tuesday morning, back at the White House, after spending the weekend at Walter Reed Army Medical Center, President Trump ordered his negotiators to cease and desist to end the negotiations with Speaker Pelosi. Political Washington erupted. Republican lawmakers were outraged and Democrats were gleeful. The talks, which no one had expected to come to fruition, but which everyone knew were important to to continue for political reasons, were over. And at Trump's demand, it looked like he had wrapped up an early Christmas present for Speaker Pelosi and had it hand-delivered to her. By Tuesday evening, he had realized that he could not allow himself to be portrayed as having pulled out of the talks unilaterally. So he began tweeting demands for standalone bills to provide aid to the airline industry, to provide $1,200 checks to individuals, and to provide more small business loans. Speaker Pelosi said she would love to support those standalone bills, but only as part of a larger agreement on a comprehensive coronavirus relief bill. No comprehensive bill, she said, no smaller standalone bills either. By Friday afternoon, the White House had come full circle. The negotiations were back on for a full and comprehensive coronavirus relief bill. And the Trump administration had caved a bit. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin raised the ante by $200 billion when he delivered a $1.8 trillion spending proposal in a 30-minute phone call with the Speaker. Even as his Treasury Secretary was talking with the Speaker, President Trump was raising the goalposts further. During a two-hour appearance on the Rush Limbaugh radio show Friday afternoon, President Trump said, quote, I would like to see a bigger stimulus package than, frankly, either the Democrats or the Republicans are offering. I'm going in the exact opposite direction now, okay? Saturday, senior administration officials held a conference call with Republican senators. The Republicans were not happy, and they made their displeasure evident. In response, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows is reported to have told the senators, quote, you all will have to come to my funeral, unquote, when he delivers the news to the president. But Saturday afternoon, Speaker Pelosi delivered a letter to her House Democrat colleagues explaining why she was rejecting the offer. The Trump proposal is insufficient, she wrote. Sunday morning, she delivered another letter rejecting even more strongly the Trump offer. In this new letter, she said the administration's policies on testing and tracing are inadequate. Time is running out. We may end up with a deal, but no law. That is, it's quite possible that Trump and Pelosi could come to an agreement, but there will not be enough time to pass it through both houses of Congress before the election. Or we may end up with no deal at all before the election. Stay tuned. Now to the 25th Amendment. On Friday, Speaker Pelosi and Democrat Jamie Raskin of Maryland, a former professor of constitutional law, introduced H.R. 8548 to establish the Commission on Presidential Capacity to discharge the powers and duties of the office and for other purposes. There are 38 original co-sponsors. This bill would create a commission to gauge a president's capacity to perform the duties of the job and creates a mechanism by which a president could be removed from office. The commission is based on the language of Section 4 of the 25th Amendment to the Constitution, which reads, quote, Whenever the vice president and a majority of either the principal officers of the executive departments or of such other body as Congress may by law provide, transmit to the president pro tem of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives their written declaration that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, the vice president shall immediately assume the powers and duties of the office 
as acting president, unquote. So this legislation seeks to fill in the spot created by that language that reads, or of other such body as Congress may by law provide, because guess what? Congress has never created such a body. The commission would be composed of 17 members and would be tasked with determining the president's fitness for office. The 17 members would be four physicians, four psychiatrists, and eight former high-ranking executive officials to be chosen from a pool composed of former presidents, former vice presidents, former surgeons general, and former secretaries of state, treasury, defense, and attorneys general. The bipartisan leaders of both chambers of Congress would choose those 16 members, and then those 16 would choose the 17th member. This bill is going absolutely nowhere in the current Congress. Even if it passed the House, it would be dead on arrival in the Senate. And President Trump would certainly veto it if it somehow miraculously made it to his desk. But think of what might happen if the Democrats were to win the White House and recapture the Senate. They could pass this bill in the early weeks of the 117th Congress, and then they'd be all set to use it against President Biden. Some have suggested that's actually the real goal of this legislation, to make possible a constitutional coup to install Kamala Harris as president, whether Joe Biden is ready to go on his own terms or not. Now to court packing. First off, let's get something straight. Despite what the Democrats are trying to do now, to wit, change the understood definition of court packing so they can argue that it is Republicans who are engaging in court packing. The term has a generally understood definition, and it means this, enlarging the number of justices that sit on the Supreme Court so as to dilute the influence of the justices they don't like. You know, Clarence Scalito. A liberal president would appoint new liberal judges who can then make law from the bench in areas that liberals cannot get through a legislature. Of the eight justices now sitting on the Supreme Court, Republican presidents appointed five. They are Chief Justice John Roberts, Justice Clarence Thomas, Justice Samuel Alito, Justice Neil Gorsuch, and Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Democrat presidents appointed the three remaining justices, Stephen Breyer, Elena Kagan, and Sonia Sotomayor. Assuming Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed, that would make the balance on the court six to three. Depending on which legal scholar you believe, that would make the Supreme Court a clearly conservative heavy court for the first time since the 1950s or the first time since the 1930s. Liberals and Democrats are aghast. They have relied on the court for decades to make law from the bench that they cannot get, a through, get, get through a legislature because it's so out of touch with our fundamental values. So their solution is to pack the court by adding new liberal justices. All it would take is a simple piece of legislation that amends the law that's been on the books since 1869, which sets the number of justices of the Supreme Court at nine. And the amendment could be simple. All it would have to do is strike the word nine and replace it with, say, 13. If the court were expanded to 13 justices, that would create four openings that could then be filled by a President Biden. Take the three justices already appointed by Democratic presidents previously, add four new justices nominated by President Biden, and voila. Now you've got a Supreme Court that's balanced with seven justices appointed by Democrats and six by Republicans. This is a terrible idea. In fact, it's so bad that in the 1930s, when the Supreme, when the Supreme Court struck down as unconstitutional, some of the things Franklin Delano Roosevelt passed as part of his New Deal agenda, Roosevelt tried to pack the court. He pushed a bill that would have added up to six new justices. At that time, Democrats controlled the Senate by a margin of 76 to 16. 
But even with a 60 vote margin in the Senate, he couldn't get it through because even party loyalty has its limits. Democrats have been talking about this for more than a year. Kamala Harris said she was open to the idea a year ago when she was still running for the Democrat nomination for president. In the wake of the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Democrats and liberals are talking openly about packing the court with new additional seats. But Biden and Harris know this idea is not popular with the general public. In fact, changing the rules like this is so unpopular with the general public that I think the election could turn on this hinge if this could be made into the voting question the voters are asking themselves as they make their voting decision. Biden and Harris are so worried about this idea they've made the decision not to they have made the decision not to answer questions about it. This is not playing out well. Biden would not answer a question about it in the first debate with Trump. Harris would not answer Pence's questions about it, and he asked her directly twice. Now Biden has gone so far as to say, quote, no, they don't deserve an answer when asked by a reporter a few days ago if he didn't think voters deserved an answer from him. He even parroted Nancy Pelosi when he said we would have to find out after the election what is his position on court packing. What can we deduce from the refusal of the Biden-Harris ticket to tell us what is their position on court packing? Well, it seems reasonable to me that if they were opposed to it, they would simply say so. They'd be on the right side with the public. So if they opposed it, why wouldn't they just say so? Not only would it not cost them anything, it would actually gain them something. So there's got to be a reason they don't answer the question with a simple, of course we oppose that, next question. And the only reason I can come up with is they support the idea. They plan to pack the court if they get elected. Stay tuned. This issue is not going away. And finally, to the Supreme Court. Judge Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation hearings will take place this week. On Monday, senators and the nominee will make their opening statements all day long. On Tuesday and Wednesday, senators will question the nominee and then go into executive session. On Thursday, the committee will question panels of outside expert witnesses. On Sunday, she released her four-page opening statement. You'll find it in the suggested reading. I'll give you just two excerpts I found important. First, quote, courts have a vital responsibility to enforce the rule of law, which is critical to a free society. But courts are not designed to solve every problem or right every wrong in our public life. The policy decisions and value judgments of government must be made by the political branches elected by and accountable to the people. The public should not expect courts to do so, and courts should not try, end quote. Later, in her concluding paragraph, Judge Barrett says, quote, I believe in the power of prayer, and it has been uplifting to hear that so many people are praying for me, end quote. Given what her opponents have made of her religion, I am glad to see she is not backing off. And that's our Washington Report for this week.